I wanted more people to have a redemptive experience of giving of their time and of their talent and of their money, you know, which I'd just done for the last two years, and seeing how rewarding that can be. I wanted to invite people to try unselfishness versus selfishness and share the transformative human experience I'd gone through with others through giving and generosity. The thing was birthed out of my personal faith, but the charity has had no religious affiliation. And that's been really exciting to me to see Jews and Christians and atheists and Muslims and Mormons and everybody kind of come together under this very big tent of clean water. It's really one of those few things everybody can agree on. That's Scott Harrison, and this is the Rich Roll Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. Hey, everybody. What's going on? How are you? What's happening? My name is Rich Roll. I am your host. Welcome to my podcast. Today, as you might imagine, we're coming at this from a little bit of a different angle. We are live here in Ireland, County Cork, at Bally Villan House. I'm here with the Plant Power Ireland camper. Say hello, everybody. Hey, hello. We're, we're on the last day of our uh, seven-day experience. Have you guys been having a good time? Yeah! Yes, amazing. It's been an incredible experience uh, connecting with everybody over the course of the last several days. We've had a great time running. We got lost on our run today, <laughs> like <laughs> trespassing across some farm. There might have been uh, an electrical fence involved. Uh, gladly, uh, no dogs or police uh, had to intervene. But it's been amazing. We've been doing tea ceremony. We've been eating together. We've been learning about cooking and nutrition. The Happy Pear guys came down. Uh, it's been extraordinary, and I'm so blessed to have spent this time with you guys. So thank you for all coming together to cultivate community around these ideas that are certainly so important to Julie and I and obviously important to you guys. So I appreciate it. And I also appreciate you guys sitting down to do the introduction for this week's podcast with me. As I always say, uh, recording these introductions is the most challenging, difficult thing for me in this whole podcast uh, experience because sitting down alone and talking into a microphone by myself, I don't know, I get all caught up in my head. So it's actually very helpful to have you guys here. So I appreciate it. Super fun. Uh, everybody say hello one more time. Hello. Uh, to match this amazing week today, I'm excited to share with you an amazing conversation uh, with the incredibly inspiring Scott Harrison. Uh, for those who don't know, Scott is the founder and CEO of Charity Water. He's a guy with quite a story. Uh, it's a story you're definitely not going to want to miss. Uh, it's truly uh, one of the most extraordinary uh, accounts I've ever heard. He's one of the most impressive people I've ever had the good fortune to meet. Uh, and I want to explain a little bit more about him and that and the why behind this conversation and what you can expect in just a moment. But first... brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel, but what you wear isn't just clothes. It is without a doubt technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics, 
And just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality, previously unheard of, that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking Ons high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailored fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team from increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. All right, Scott Harrison. Uh, this guy, holy cow, what a crazy, amazing story he has to tell. So this is a guy who spent essentially an entire decade in a decadent state of mind as a successful nightclub promoter in New York City until he has this crisis of conscience. And this crisis of conscience ultimately led Scott on this pilgrimage in search of purpose for his life. And it's a journey that ultimately uh, led him to extended volunteer stints in Liberia, where he was exposed to levels of unimaginable poverty and illness. And over time, he came to understand that many of the infections and the diseases that he was seeing that their group was treating were waterborne and could have been prevented if people had access to clean drinking water. Uh, and yet it seemed that nobody was really focused on solving this gigantic yet seemingly solvable problem. So upon returning to New York City in 2006, he turned his full attention to this global water crisis, to learning about it and trying to determine how he could begin to tackle it. Uh, he found out that there were then at that point in time, 1.1 billion people living without access to clean water, which is pretty shocking. Uh, and the manifestation of Scott's commitment to this cause is Charity Water, which is a for-purpose endeavor that he founded, that he currently runs, that to date has raised over $210 million to fund over 20,000 water projects around the world uh, and brings clean water to more than 6.3 million people. It's really quite something impressive. Uh, but even more than that, I think what's really interesting about Scott's story and the story of Charity Water is that he quite literally reimagined and reinvigorated and, and really reinvented how we give and how we think about giving by repairing public trust in charity and, and also modernizing the process, the branding, uh, and really the connection between the giver and the results of giving. And Scott's story is really 
an extraordinary one. And this is just such a great conversation. It's a conversation about transformation. It's a conversation about the power of giving. And it's a conversation about the power I think we all hold to be agents of positive change, the power and the potential that we all carry to quite literally change the world. Uh, and this is really a special one for me. And I should say that we recorded this conversation a couple months ago, but I just hung out with Scott two weeks ago at the World Domination Summit in Portland. That's Chris Gillibo's event. Uh, if you haven't listened to my conversation with Chris on the podcast, I would check that out. In any event, I got to see Scott deliver his full keynote in person. And I have to say, it was one of the most incredibly powerful uh, public presentations uh, I've ever had the, the privilege of seeing. I was just really moved by his story and his work uh, and his example. And it's inspired me to to be better, to do more, and to give more. So on that note, I have an important announcement I'm going to make at the end of this conversation. So please stick around uh, to the very end. All right, enough. Uh, you guys, did we do it? Introduction okay? Did I say about him? You guys rate it? Are you excited to hear uh, the conversation with Scott? All right, good. Let's talk to Scott. Cool. So awesome to meet you. Thanks for taking the time. I'm really excited to unpack your story, the nice charity to be water here. story, your personal story, which is equally amazing and dovetails beautifully with you know the narrative behind. Um, you know, how you built this amazing enterprise. So let's get into it, man. Where do we start? I know. Well, I think that, first of all, do you ever get tired of telling your story? My wife asks that all the time. Because <laughs> you're, you're Cause very good at it. it. <laughs> she, she's tired of it. Um, well, it's I'm going to make you, I'm gonna last, make you do it. I spoke last night at an event and she just always goes in the other room now. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't need to hear this anymore. Um, I feel like the only, not the only, but the best way to tell the story is really to, we got to go back to the beginning. Right. I mean, that's how we can contextualize everything that sure. follows. So, so the beginning is uh, really an event that happened when I was four years old. I was born in Philadelphia in a very middle class family, and my dad was—I never really understood what he did—but he sold electrical type transformer power supply things. Uh, businessman. Uh, a businessman. Uh, my mom was a writer, and. You know, they had me and, and uh, you know, they'd been trying to have kids for a while, uh, had me. And when I was four, we moved from Philadelphia to get closer to my dad's new job, uh, to the suburbs of Southern Jersey. Mm -hmm. And unbeknownst to us, we moved into this uh, kind of beige, ground, brown, gray house uh, that, you know, wasn't necessarily a dream house, but it was, it was going to eliminate his commute down to 20 minutes. And we didn't know this, but the gas company, PSENG, had installed a faulty furnace in the house that had pinhole cracks and carbon, leaks, carbon monoxide was leaking through this house. So we all start to get a little sick after moving in. Uh, I, my dad and I were only sleeping in the house. So he was working really long hours. I was at school. I was playing with my friends. And on January 1, on New Year's Day, my mom walks across uh, her bedroom and she collapses unconscious on the floor. And it took us a while uh, and a bunch of blood tests to find these massive amounts of carbon monoxide, carboxyhemoglobin mm -hmm. in her bloodstream. So she'd been exposed as she was fixing up the basement uh, over time. And you were so, how old at this I point? I was four. Four. 
So I just started uh, getting sick and weird allergies, and uh, I bounced back very quickly. My dad wound up ripping the furnace out, finding the cracks himself. And what happened to my mom, she didn't die, thankfully. So uh, a lot of people actually die from this prolonged exposure. But her immune system died forever. So it was irreparably destroyed. And from that moment, everything uh, chemical, which would be normal to us, started making her sick. Uh, Examples, uh, car fumes would make her terribly sick. Uh, Perfume or deodorant or any soap with a scent or perfume would make her incredibly sick. Uh, I remember vividly as a kid, the ink from books would make her sick. So her workaround uh, was to give my dad and I a book that she wanted to read, and we would bake it in the oven to try to outgas the smell of the print. And then uh, my mom at the time was living in almost a containment cell, a bathroom, a tile bathroom that had been scrubbed down with um, uh, something called basic H and ivory soap. And she slept on an army cot that had been washed maybe 30 times in baking soda. And I remember the door was covered completely in tinfoil. And she couldn't um, leave the room. Uh, she would she would be in the room uh, when she was in the house. That was the only room in our you know 2,000 mm-hmm. square foot house that she could be yeah, in. Like having to live in a bubble. And then she would live outside. It was just like living in a bubble. Uh, and you're an, a movie, only, you're an only child. Yeah, the boy in the bubble. Uh, boy right? in the bubble. And then there was a movie called Safe with Julianne Moore. Yes. That is very very close to. There was my a mom's movie that condition. just came out also like a teen uh, like a teen movie about a girl who can't leave her house and. Well, I haven't heard about that, thrill. but I'd, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I don't know I'd love to called, see it. But, uh, so that was what it was like. And, and I would march the you know slightly charred book up to my mom's uh, room. The door would open. She was wearing cotton gloves because she still couldn't touch the print if it got in her bloodstream. Uh, and then she would wear these charcoal, really ugly masks and then would often use oxygen. So it was just a really bizarre uh, existence. Family planning stopped uh, after this illness. They wanted to have a big family, but uh, she was just so sick. And you know, at a very young age, I went into this caregiver role. Uh, mom was now you know, not a mom. Mom was an, an invalid, a patient. Mm-hmm. And I did the cooking, I did the cleaning. Uh, we tried everything. We took her from doctor to clinic. Uh, I remember for a period of years, she was doing a rotation diet where she would eat one thing every seven or eight days. You know, breakfast would be codfish. You know, lunch would be walnuts. Dinner would be, uh, I don't know, kale or and some be, sort of... to be that young and have to transition from just being a kid into being a caregiver, I mean, that, that's traumatic. It's and funny. That's, I'm, that's a I'm, lot to ask of a young child. I'm writing a book uh, right now with um, with someone else, and, and she uh, she keeps feeling sorry for me. And I just didn't feel that way. This was, this was just the reality. Uh-huh. But she's like, man, as a kid, I mean, you... You know, you you had it really rough. I I didn't feel like that. I actually felt needed. Uh, There was this sense of responsibility to take care of my mom, to do the cooking. But your behavior later on demonstrated, you know, sort of the (laughs) backlash. You know, I mean, that was in there. You know what I mean? This need to, you know, to express yourself differently. Sure, sure. So it was. uh, um, My parents had a deep Christian faith. They would they would identify as non-denominational. So you know, they wouldn't um, be Methodist or Presbyterian or Baptist or any of that. They just um, they were they would call themselves Christians. And interestingly, they didn't sue the gas company. Uh, for for negligence, I think they took twelve hundred dollars as a hey. We're really sorry right. for the carbon monoxide uh, and the you know the furnace we put in that had holes in it. Um, but here's twelve hundred dollars, and they just didn't want to become bitter. They didn't want to go through 
you know, a protracted legal engagement and, and, and they believe that it wasn't the fault. It wasn't an intentional How fault. do you feel about that decision? I actually have a lot of admiration for them. You know, they had health care and, you know, probably could have sued for millions of dollars. But, you know, my parents, you know, today, if you fast forward, um, oh, maybe they live on $40,000 a year and they probably give double that away. Mm-hmm. Um, they live very modest lives. They've, um, they're very, very generous. You know, they, they really live to be able to give and support how are they doing uh, now? Causes. Um, my mom has, she has learned how to cope. Now we're, we're almost 37 years later. And in some ways she's, she's much better. She can eat more normally. Uh, when I go home, uh, I'll change clothes. So if I'll come from New York City with my wife and my kids, uh, we there's a staging area in the garage, yeah. and we kind of strip down to our underwear, and we put on uh, special clothes that we've left at the house that have been washed uh, in baking wow. soda and made pure. And then we're able to interact with my mom in a really normal way. Mm-hmm. So she's no longer confined to a room. She's sleeping in the same bedroom. Um, we actually moved houses to, uh, to the, the country uh, to a more pure environment. So I would say she's doing better, but still can't come in to New York City and right. visit her grandkids. You know, we, we have to go to them and then really get pure. So this uh, childhood was just weird. Uh, and what I, kind I was, of kid were you? I was a good kid. I was the good Christian kid that didn't smoke, didn't drink, didn't have sex, and didn't cuss. Uh-huh. And I played piano on, on Sundays in the church. Uh-huh. And I, I really played by the rules. I felt a responsibility to take care of her. If you'd asked me what I wanted to do growing up, uh, it was to become a doctor, to help people, uh, to help sick people like my Continue mom. Continue the caregiving. Yeah. It didn't quite turn out that way. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's caregiving in a different kind of way. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, the, the, the divergence around 18. <laughs> right. All right. So, so you get into NYU and you make your big move to the city. Well, that was interesting. Uh, uh, I, NYU was really the afterthought. Um, I, you know, I thought I was going to go to, I don't know, medical school or, or, or be a doctor. And then, you know, around 16, 17, just this rebellious streak hit. Uh, they, my parents had me in a Christian school in the ninth grade with nine people in my class. Uh-huh. And the, the teacher was a VHS cassette on one of those video carts that would get rolled in. That was science class. Oh so it was in the basement of a church. And I just was like, I- I'm going to run away from home if this is going to be my education. Uh-huh. So they, I convinced them to put me in the 4,000 person high school. And I think they just saw something about my personality that scared you know, this scared them. <laughs> Which was what specifically? I would go nuts uh-huh. <laughs> and and fall in with the wrong crowd and and you know take on some of the vices that the parents get afraid of. So I, I and do. And what do you think? Let's just like, let's put a pin in that. I mean, do you think that it was that a reaction to the kind of sort of constricted home life that you had, or what was it like? What was the wild oat all about? I, I've I've wondered that. I. I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe it was not having you know the normal fun life. Um, maybe it was that religion felt a little oppressive uh, mm-hmm. to me uh, and and rules based. You know, all about what you shouldn't be doing rather than what you should be doing. So yeah, I, I moved to the high school, and there's four thousand people there, and I immediately just find out, wow, everybody's drinking, everybody's having sex, everybody's smoking, everybody's cursing. Uh-huh. Uh, this seems like a lot of fun, and I, I'd, I'd always played the piano uh, from the age of four. Uh, joined a band, a band called Sunday River, named after a, a ski resort on the East Coast, 
And, you know, the next thing I know, we're driving into New York City playing these gigs uh, at, at famous clubs, uh, at CBGB's, at the Wetlands, at the Lion's Den. Um, and we're getting booked and people like are a turning punk, up. Like a punk band? It was, it was more, uh, let's see if I go back to that time. It was, it was sort of Counting Crows meets Pearl Jam meets the band live uh-huh. so uh, <laughs> this is like 93 or something like that like what, yeah our lead singer sounded a little like uh, scott whalen from uh-huh. stone temple but then the piano had a different uh or the keyboard had a different feel to it um so that was i moved to new york city to really i was the band's manager by default just because i was the, the more responsible one and I was booking us out. I was trying to get us a, a record deal, which you know was a real thing at the time, and you could make money uh, by selling records. And I managed to get us discovered by the Scorpions one night, who heard us play, and they invited us to meet their manager. And you know we're on this re- on this track for a record deal, and the band just falls apart. I mean, drugs, uh, unreliability. We all really did. We kind of hated each other by the end of it. And that led me to say, well, I've already moved to New York City. I don't have a viable band anymore. Um, what else could I do to make money? And oh, by the way, I should probably go to college <laughs> to now because my dad saved up uh, and, you know, I was an only child. Right. But they had to be freaking out, right? Like you. <laughs> at, at many times, <laughs> yeah. yes. What happened? We did everything correctly. We did everything right. And, and he just went astray. Well, it gets worse for them. Uh, I, I then go from playing in the band to becoming a nightclub promoter. So I realized that the people on the other side of the equation were the ones that were really making the money and having more fun. So our band would turn up, we would be schlepping amps and you know, guitars and uh, in, in our Ford Taurus station wagon, you know, that was going to break down at any minute. And we would bring a bunch of people to the club. They would pay a cover. And I don't know, the promoters might throw us 200 bucks to split six ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I realized that the promoters were the ones that were making the money. Mm-hmm. So the minute the band broke up, I, I teamed up with one of them and in a very short time began producing an open mic night, an R&B open mic night uh, at a legendary club called Nell's in New York City. And a year later, you know, Stevie Wonder is coming and playing and Shaka Khan and Brian McKnight and Whitney Houston and uh, Bobby Brown. I mean, it was the most incredible. Prince was in there uh, often. He would always come in and uh, he had this favorite corner in the back and he would unscrew all the light bulbs or his team would ask us to unscrew the light bulbs Uh so he could sit there in darkness (laughs) and would often jump up on stage. So. You know, imagine me as this 19-year-old kid, uh, two years before I'm actually allowed to be in a nightclub promoting this uh, this open mic, this open mic um, where uh, amazing R&B people that's are crazy. coming. I mean, I, I got mean, to play piano on stage with Stevie Wonder. That's it was incredible. A, that's amazing. And and there's like a, underneath that, there's not only like this sort of hustle that obviously gets played into here, but also like you must be like this natural networker, right? Like the, the sort of, social skills that allowed you to book the book the band you know originally into these clubs and meet all these people and get with the scorpions and then translating that into you know this burgeoning career as a, as a club promoter and then later on like what you're doing now right i think i was just willing to ask people 
And I liked inviting people to things. I liked inviting them into a party. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm an includer. I remember doing that Strengths Finder once, which kind of tells you, you know, here are the things that you're really good at. And one of them was uh, was an includer. You know, if I see someone at a party who's off uh, to the side and nobody's talking to them, I'm going to drop the conversation I'm in and I'm going to go and try and bring them in or introduce them to someone. So I think that that skill worked really well in nightlife. I mean, you're inviting people into mm-hmm. a party and when you get past the velvet rope, it's going to be amazing inside. Uh, all the right people, you know, the right DJs, the right celebrities. Uh, and then, you know, it, the better you get at that, the more you can charge right. for cocktails. Right, right, right. So what were the clubs that you were working with the most? Well, I worked at f- uh, at least 45 venues over a decade. So this this became a 10-year um, profession, I guess, yeah. or career. Uh, started out in R&B, and then it moved over to uh, fashion, uh, what we would call models and bottles, uh, as as a club called Lotus opened up in New York City, and someone dared me that I couldn't get a job there, so I just started calling the club, uh, leaving a voicemail for the owners. Uh, I mean, daily until finally they told me to stop harassing me. Right. And they, you know, I, again, I had this very successful R and B night a couple blocks away. I think they started paying me one hundred and fifty dollars a week, so I just start completely over mm-hmm. in a new scene and began to figure that out and figure out how to get a different set of, of modeling agencies and bookers and celebrities and uh, people from the music business to come. And how does it, like, what is the logistics of that? Like you contact a club and you say, give me this one night and I'm going to throw this party and they just open it up for you and you work out some deal on how you're going to share the, share the, share the door. Or? Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty simple. You know, clubs are, well, they would have their good nights and then they would have their slow nights. So you would typically, a club would hire a promoter, uh, and this is again, 10 to 12 years ago, right. but uh, they would hire us for their, you know, their off nights and we would cut a pretty big deal. We would cut, you know, maybe the full door that we would want and then 10 or 15% of all alcohol sales mm-hmm. of all take. But they're saying, hey, look, we're only going to ring three or $4,000. If these guys can bring in 25 or 30, you know, they're just splitting a piece of the yeah, upside. Yeah, let them go. So you, you were really incentivized to bring your crowd so that we would develop a following. And the idea is that the people were coming to uh, my parties, they, they cared much less about the club. So the minute we moved from one club to the next club, they would follow us. They wouldn't keep going to that club. Right. Um, people are there to see people. And you're not wed to the bricks and mortar once that club goes into decline, as they all do at some point. Exactly, exactly. So you're, you're asset light. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you really have no risk. You're, you're almost uh, mercenaries or kind of guns for hire. And, you know, club owners and promoters have uh, fractious relationships. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and, you know, it's, uh, uh, clubs do well very well. I mean, there's, there's some clubs that have figured out how to be around for 10 years and, and make really, really good money. Um, did you any, ever, uh, did you, uh, this is an aside, but did you ever work with, uh, Jeff Gossett at Moomba? I, d- I, I didn't work with him, but I was at Moomba every Monday. You were, yeah. He, I he's was a, a fixture he, in the karaoke night. He's a friend and he sort of had a interesting trajectory in his, I don't know if you have I never kept in touch up with him, him but like, cause he was like, you know, Moomba was, that had a moment, right? Like that was mm-hmm. the place. And he's since become like a, a yogi and bought a property in Costa Rica and basically just lives there and has a retreat center. Like he went completely, he had a similar kind of 
you know, moment of reckoning with that lifestyle and just completely shut the door on it and lives a completely different life now. It happens. I was walking my son to school the other day uh, with another guy that I knew, uh, you know, from this period of time, 12, 13 years ago. And he was just saying, you know, I woke up one morning and I looked in a mirror. I said, who is this man? Like, what have I become? You know, coked up from the night before, mm-hmm. you know, it's 10 a.m. or something. Um, didn't like his face, didn't like you know, that feeling of drugs in his body. And he's like a banker now. (laughs) He just, he completely checked out. So that's what happened for me. It was 10 years of very predictable models, bottles, 45 clubs, flying around the world to chase fashion week in Milan, Paris and London, uh, vacations in Buzios, Brazil and Punta del Este, South America. And uh, you're, you're just kind of piggybacking on other people's money. Uh, So you're living at such a high your lifestyle looks great, right? $10,000 dinners, but you're not paying. Um, right, you're, and you're, you're selling this idea of validation based upon the crowd of people that you're going to cool. get to hang out. To yeah, you're selling yeah. cool, and and there are girls around. Right, um, there are beautiful girls around. So, and are you when you're promoting these parties? Are you you're present at all of them? And are you getting loaded every every night? Like every you time are, you're throwing you're these getting things? loaded, but but in a way not out of addiction, at least for me, but out of total boredom. It becomes the most banal, boring thing in the world. Having the same conversation, shouting over a DJ who's playing the exact same songs, you know, mm-hmm. and turning up at midnight, you know, to sit around for three or four hours. Uh, it, it's really painful after a while. So, yeah, I mean, I was getting loaded. Uh, you know, I went from, you know, not doing anything to smoking two packs of cigarettes a day for 10 years, you know, heavy drinking problem. Uh, cocaine, ecstasy, MDMA, pretty much everything short of heroin, uh, and then a serious gambling problem and and a pornography problem and a strip club problem. Mm-hmm. So we, it it got dark in a hurry. Yeah. Do you think about what it would have been like had Instagram been around during that era for you? Because because on the out you could paint that you could sort of paint this picture of it looking super sexy and fun and amazing and you know nightlife and girls uh-huh. and fancy cars and private jets and exotic you know foreign locations all of that well that's what our photos you know we have photo mm-hmm. albums full of you know us standing next to private jets with six girls you know uh and that that's uh yeah and we were sharing selling. it publicly you're selling, but you're selling that you're selling yeah. that dream i mean i remember you know watching a guy play ten thousand dollar hands of blackjack and that's the dream, right? That rush of watching someone, mm-hmm. you know, have a million dollars of chips on the table and not care whether he wins or loses. And he's surrounded by, you know, the jet set and, and you know, six foot models. I mean, the whole thing, gosh, it, it sounds so silly now, but it's, it, was what, uh, it was what I thought was important at the time. Um, more money, more girls, more things, um, better vacations, and... You know, th- thankfully, I, I came to a realization and, and got out, <laughs> like, right. like our friend Jeff. Was it a, I mean, I know it, it kind of all sort of came to a head in Punta del Este on this sort of, you know, party retreat that you helped produce. Um, was it a progressive sort of slide towards that realization? Or was it really just one moment where you're like, I, I, gotta, I gotta get out of this? It, it, it was. It was both. Uh, it was... 
I remember my partner and I were trying to actually make the the switch to ownership and we were offered uh, 10 or 15% of a restaurant to attach our names to it. So that was cool. We would still promote, but now we would be kind of, you know, official restaurant tours. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's what happens at, at the most successful level. You know, you've got guys like Noah and Jason who we were promoting um, promoting with who then go on to, you know, run Tao Group, which right. is now a series of restaurants or and clubs. Sean and McPherson or Sean Brent, McPherson. Brent it's Bolthouse. funny, I biked by Sean yeah. uh, on the West Side Highway last week. Um, you become like a and hotelier and was like, Sean! Know, like, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, you could have graduated but, to that sort of respectable. So that's what we were trying you know, to do, business right? That's what we were trying to do. And as, as I guess we would, you know, we're, my partner and I were both uh, approaching 30. Um, really what happened on this trip, uh, to Punta del Este was, it was, it was just one of those cathartic moments where you realize that your life is just so off balance. It's so not right. Uh, but in a way it looked right. You know, my, my girlfriend at the time was on the cover of Elle magazine. Uh, Hey, we were this palatial estate we had rented, um, there were servants serving us there. There were horses. Um, the right people were there. We spent $1,000 on fireworks. There were magnums of Dom Perignon. Just this was what we were chasing. And I remember the party on New Year's Eve just went on so long. And I remember waking up. I probably, probably went to bed at 10 a.m., probably woke up around three or four and the party was still going on in our Mm -hmm. compound. And what should have been this idyllic, beautiful setting, you know, near the ocean, um, set in the the trees in this beautiful kind of wooded area was just this kind of degenerate thrashing in a way. And it just all felt so unhealthy, uh, like a, like a game of musical chairs, you know, where the music stops and I'm standing and, I just realized, I think on this trip, that there would never be enough of the things I was looking for to to satisfy me. Yeah, there would never right. be enough girls. There would never be enough money. Somebody would always have a better car and a better watch. And, you know, I, there would never be an end to the the self-serving, you know, sycophantic nature of, you know, climbing up this, this social ladder. It's also got to be confusing also when you're, you've been sold this idea that these are the things that are going to make you, you know, make you happy and feel fulfilled and to play that game, you know, at the highest level and get to that point where this is where it's supposed to feel great and, and realize like, this is not what I thought it would be. But I realized the other people weren't happy. They weren't happy. So it's almost like the veil was lifted. Uh, And I remember, you know, specifically one person and this guy had all the money and the private jets and and he was dating girls younger than his daughter and his daughters didn't want to talk to him. Mm -hmm. And there was just so much kind of sadness and wreckage and the value system was just so off. Um, you know, faith had a big part to play. So for 10 years, I hadn't been going to church. I hadn't been obviously living by any of the things that any of the moral codes that I'd been brought up with. And I, I remember, you know, hung, deeply hung over on this trip, you know, beginning to read this uh, piece of deep theology, uh, a book called The Pursuit of God uh, by this theologian named A.W. Tozer, who I think wrote the book in a day or two, just sat down and wrote it. And I felt like I was reading the opposite intention of my life. Here was a man who was trying to understand God, his creator, understand um, values of virtue and humility and compassion and righteousness and just all of this stuff that I wasn't. 
and I think, you know, I'm, I'm pretty extreme just being faced with the opposite. You know, what, what would the opposite of a hedonistic, self-serving life look like? It might be this. It might be a life of serving others, a life of virtue, uh, a life of purity. So I, 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 I won't say it was that quick of a transition, but I came back to New York City and now nightlife was ruined for me. I was having no more fun at the clubs. The restaurant thing was interesting, but it was kind of a trendy restaurant, you know, with a club in the top that we were trying to sell bottles, you know, after dinner. Um, you know, I wasn't in love with my girlfriend at the time that I was kind of living with and I just everything was wrong. And I remember trying to smoke less, trying to drink less, uh, trying to, you know, cut out all the drugs and just kind of flailing a little bit um, and, and just not having that much success. Right, like and, one foot in, one foot out. What does that look like? How, you know, how is that going to look like? like oh, I should just sort of try to clean up things a little bit and not getting any satisfaction out of like half measures. And I needed the money. So it wasn't yeah. like I could just stop working. I mean, nightclub promoters, you know, we make good money, but we are not savers, right? We're uh, we're kind of typically spending 5% more than we're making. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that just goes along with the lifestyle. So this thing that I did for a living, the other thing is you don't easily jump professions. You're making so much money. You can't just go you know, get a marketing job. Right. Uh, you know, Sit it'd be a third of what you're making. <laughs> so it's a, it's a little bit of a, it was a little bit of a dilemma. Anyway, six months later, um, I'm out with, um, this, this event happens in a nightclub and I'm out with, uh, my new partner of the restaurant and we're at this, um, this kind of trendy members only club. And I get in some altercation with the bouncer who was harassing my friend. And I wind up getting this guy fired the next day. And the guy comes after me the next night, you know, threatening to kill me and you know this this kind of stuff happens in nightlife Mm -hmm. i probably have my life threatened 50 times Mm -hmm. you know for not letting people in the door you know you're you're standing on the inside of the velvet rope they're on the outside (laughs) they're like i am gonna come by and just you know i'm gonna shoot you so full of holes um so you know that that certainly wasn't the first time that my life had been threatened but um this felt like a great opportunity to just take a little time off and uh and just get out of town for a couple weeks and I, I remember, you know, calling my business partner and saying, you handle the clubs for a couple of weeks, uh, renting a cobalt blue Ford Mustang, grabbing a Bible and a bottle of Dewar's and just driving north. Right. That was the destination. That's north. like out of a movie. North. Like, and, and you have this, uh, you know, this, this bifurcated soul, right? Like the Bible and the bottle. I'm you telling know? you. I mean, it was really that extreme. <laughs> These, uh, you know, even, even reading the theology, you know, having done a plate of cocaine the night before. I mean, that was, I was really caught in these two worlds, the world of my childhood uh, the values and the spirituality that I've been brought up with and then, then the hedonistic lifestyle mm-hmm. that I'd embraced for 10 years. So even, you know, I'm driving, uh, I mean, uh, I drove up to Connecticut and then Vermont. I wind up in Maine and I'm trying to smoke less. So just imagine me like reading through the Old Testament while chain smoking right. and, you know, sipping on <laughs> scotch right, at night. Yeah. With uh, no destination, right? With no You're destination. Just like, right, right, right. I really don't know where I'm going. Uh-huh. And, you know, I start to pray and, and talk to God and, you know, not know if any, anyone's really listening and just uh, begin to explore what could be next. And I get this idea to just explore the opposite of my life uh, in a tangible way for one year. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a principle. Based on that book. 
based on or a lot of stuff. Based on a lot of stuff. Um, re- you know, reading the Bible again, just listening to some some teaching. I mean, it's a there's a there's a Christian principle of tithing. Um, I think it's actually a Jewish principle of tithing that. Uh, the Christians have adopted, and it's just kind of giving a tenth back. So the idea was ten years of hedonistic living. What would one uh-huh. <laughs> unselfish year look like? Where I just changed my life and I explored the 180 degree opposite. So at this time I was in Maine, and I I, I land in a little town called Greenville with my park my Mustang. I go into a dial-up internet cafe, and I begin to fill out applications to volunteer for as many humanitarian organizations as I could. Um, I'm filling out applications to you know, the United Nations, the Peace Corps, uh, World Vision, um, Save the Children, Oxfam, like anybody that I could find. Uh, just filling out these online applications saying, I'm willing to volunteer, I'm willing to volunteer. Mm-hmm. I wanted to go for a year. So at this point, I never go back to New York City. And I, uh, I drive around Maine a little more, I go visit my parents in New Jersey. Um, I actually fly to the south of France. Uh, a club friend of mine had this beautiful cabin in the Pyrenee Mountains, a uh, little forester's house. And I just went there to wait and to pray and to kind of cleanse my soul, uh-huh. if you will. And you're you're done with the drinking? Or are you still? I'm still drinking. <laughs> I'm still, you know, I'm done with the Smoking drugs. Smoking a little bit. I'm, st- I'm done with the drugs. I'm done with the pornography. I'm done with the gambling. Um, interestingly, I'm almost done with the gambling. That's another story. Uh, so they're starting to fall off, but again, nothing extreme. Uh, the There's a little email cafe that I had to go down the mountain to check emails. And long story short, I'm, I'm denied uh, by all these organizations that I've applied to. Because of course, who wants a freaking nightclub promoter on a humanitarian mission? But all you're looking to do is volunteer. You'd think they would just, you know, enlist anybody who's willing to, you know, travel over there and give of themselves. Well, they're not. <laughs> they're not. I think they have a much higher bar. <laughs> and, you know, I, I was also, I felt compelled to be honest on the application. So some of them say, do you smoke? Do you drink? And <laughs> I'm like, yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> I want to stop. But... So I, I was just, I was an easy rejection, uh, nightclub like, promoter. This isn't rehab, like this is, you know, you're going to have to actually work. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I'm, I just remember praying like, God, what is up? I mean, I've left, I've stepped out in faith and now no one will take me. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm in this limbo. And one day but I'm that's, writing. That's an, you know, that's a really beautiful test of faith right there, right? Like how committed are you really? You know, let's throw this obstacle up in front of you and see if you're going to back down or whether you're going to find a way through it. And you know, the the gift came kind of uh, <laughs> through the cloud. I was uh, I was driving my bike down from this little Pyrenee mountain shack, and there's no cell phone reception for five miles. And then, as I went through this little town, Lapardel Puy Laurent, uh, there's a couple bars. And I remember as I'm riding my bike through the town, my Nokia phone rings. That tiny little Nokia. Um, that we all had many years ago. And it's one organization called Mercy Ships. And they said, uh, we initially rejected your application, but we're about to start a mission without this position that you applied for and we need to fill it. Um, We've agreed to meet you. Mm. And I said, well, where are you guys? And they said, well, we're actually, it's a huge hospital ship organization. We're docked in Bremerhaven, Germany. So I said, well, I'm in the South of France. I'll be there in two days. So I jumped on a train and headed up to Bremerhaven, Germany, and I convinced them uh, that I was not crazy. I was not going to throw wild parties or raves uh-huh. on their hospital ship. And then I really, <laughs> uh, my heart had been changed. I really wanted to serve. 
um, I dusted off the NYU degree that I had gotten, which was in communications journalism, and said um, the, the position I was applying for was a photojournalist. So uh, that just, that it happened very, very quickly. They said, well, great, we need you to be on this mission in three weeks. So I went shopping, I bought a bunch of stuff uh, for Africa, and three weeks later, um, I had this moment where I'm staring at a 522-foot hospital ship. I'm about to walk up the gangway and sail to West Africa, to a place mm -hmm. called Liberia. Mm -hmm. And I'd never even heard of Liberia before. Uh, I thought Africa was a, a country not made up of 40-something <laughs> at the time. Uh, and then I just quit everything in that moment. I realized that the smoking would have to go, the drinking would have to go, the cursing would have to go, the gambling would have to go. Uh, the drugs certainly, you know, were gone at that point. And that I, I really, it was almost this prophetic moment that I could walk and sail away from my old life, right. kind of leave it on the shore um, and sail, it was 10 days uh, across the ocean mm -hmm. to, uh, to this new adventure. Mm. Wow. And that was, what year was that? That was 2004 in right. the fall. Right. All right, so you sail to Liberia and you have this experience with these doctors, right? Trying to treat these acute cases of, you know, people that are just in really bad shape and, and, and only able to really make a dent in what's really required and needed in that region. Yeah, that's right. Uh, amazing group of doctors who sailed this hospital ship up and down the coast of Africa for 25 years. And they would pull into the port and thousands and thousands of people would be waiting. Uh, people with uh, tumors, uh, people who had been blind, people with leprosy, people who had been burned badly during the, the war. Uh, Liberia at the time uh, had just come out of Charles Taylor's 14-year civil war with child soldiers. It had no electricity in the country, no running water, no sewage system, and one doctor for every 50,000 citizens. Mm -hmm. So if you got sick in this country, you're just out of luck. Mm -hmm. uh, for comparison in America, I think it's one per 180 of us. Uh, is, is a doctor. Mm -hmm. So the stuff we saw was, was in such extremis. I saw people with missing faces, missing ears and noses, and uh, people who had been burned so badly, you, you couldn't even recognize that there was a person, uh, many of them by the rebels who were pouring you know, hot oil over them. And it was just, it was incredibly traumatic. Um, and I'm documenting, I, my job is to take pictures of every single person up close two, three feet from their face right. to document them for the medical library, both before and after. Uh, and, you know, it was moving as well. I mean, I saw people get their sight back. I saw people who were suffocating to death, uh, many who had had tumors for eight or nine years, uh, get their entire face back after right. a five-hour surgery. Yeah, there's surgery. this story of this guy, Alfred, right? Who yeah, had he a was a giant tumor on his face. 14-year-old kid, and he had a, you know, a volleyball-sized tumor. I'm not exaggerating. Um, and he couldn't eat anymore. And he was starting to starve to death. And I watched these amazing doctors who could be on vacation. You know, these, these doctors and surgeons had money. And they could be in the Maldives. And instead, they decided to fly uh, to West Africa and use their talents in the service of others for free. Uh, all at their own expense. Mm -hmm. Even paid to get there. So I watched these doctors just cut out Alfred's tumor, throw it in the bin, sew him back up. And I got to take him home to his family and his village. And they looked at him. I mean, he'd been written off for dead many years ago. So it was, it was an incredible experience. I took 50,000 photos that first year. Wow. And just so deeply moved by the, the stories of the people that I met. 
the cool thing was that I had I'd gone to Africa with a built-in audience because I had a guest list of 15,000 people that I'd built up over 10 years, people from fashion, uh, some celebrities. So they went from getting email invitations to the Prada party or a Cosmopolitan party, you know, or whatever we were doing at the time to, you know, in the space of four weeks, <laughs> here's Alfred and he's 14 and suffocating to death on his face uh-huh. with a pink fleshy benign tumor. Uh, and I'm just I'm just telling it like I see it. Yeah. I'm sending photos and videos. So some people are like, "Take me the freak off this <laughs> list right email. now! I, unsubscribe! I unsubscribe!" Yeah. Uh, this is I didn't sign up for tumors, uh, but but really the 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 most typical response from my friends was of intrigue of uh, oh my gosh, like where are you? I never knew these conditions existed. Who are these doctors? What is this organization? How can I help? How can I give money? How can I give time? So I realized there the power that I had in kind of redeeming the relationships that uh, I'd built for 10 years, mm-hmm. um, the people that effectively I'd been getting drunk and wasted. And I could just tell them a very different story, uh, a redemptive story, a story of, of hope and courage and compassion of these doctors. And the people began to respond. Mm-hmm. So I just did that over and over again for the first year. And that year ended. Uh, I came back to New York for a couple months. Actually, Wait, put in- hold on one second. Sorry to interrupt, but yeah. at some point, does Adam Braun end up on that boat with you? I don't think Adam was ever on the ship. Just, I, when I did the podcast with him, I could have sworn he said, "I forget." I should have gone back and listened to it. But I think weren't you guys like he was on another ship actually met, that like, almost shipwrecked? That's funny. He said that he no, met he you while story. he was on his you know version of your adventure. He did. He did. I forget the name of it, but he did another uh, ship. It wasn't a mercy ship, but yeah, he they almost uh, he almost lost his life. Our ship actually caught on fire once at sea off the coast of Ghana, which is another story. But uh, we we all thought we were going to die in a. In a blazing fire in the middle of a a Ghanaian night. Uh Both both Adam and I managed to survive. Um, So the year ends, uh, long story short, I I, I put an exhibition together. I raise about $100,000 through uh, my photos for Mercy Ships. And then I just go back for another year to follow the money and to show my friends that uh, that this this work is continuing. And then more people get involved and more people give. So it was a two-year stint with mm-hmm. the organization. The second year that I was there, I came across the water issue. And I, I bought a motorcycle and started traveling off uh, the ship into the deep bush, into the deep rural areas of Liberia. And I saw people drinking dirty water for the first time. And I'd just never seen human beings drink from swamps before. And I mean, green infested, uh, crawling with bugs and worms and parasites, uh, children drinking water that we wouldn't let our dogs drink. Mm. So these two things are going on now. I'm in the villages exploring. I'm back scrubbed up for surgery, documenting these, these medical procedures. And I'm telling the surgeons what I'm seeing out there. And they begin to just start preaching about water. You know, we know so much disease comes from bad water and sanitation and hygiene. And, you know, we wish somebody was working on this issue because it'd be less work for us to do. Right. Getting at the root cause of what's leading to so many of these, uh, you know, acute conditions that these surgeons have to then deal with at the very end of that process. Right. Like, why not go to the root cause? That's true. And and in fact, 52% of all disease... Uh, in the developing world, in all these countries that we were working in, is caused by bad water and a lack of toilets. 52%. World Health Organization stat. So you think about that. Half of the the sick people don't need to be sick. They just had this basic need, Ben. Mm -hmm. So I was so compelled by 
water. Maybe this was the question behind the question. Maybe 7,000 people wouldn't turn up outside a football stadium with stuff growing on their face if they were drinking clean water and not bathing and washing with, you know, brown, viscous river water. And why, why do you think nobody had really looked at that in a serious way? Well, there was no public awareness. It. So this is now uh, 10 years ago. Uh, at the time, there were a billion people living without clean water. The largest water-only organization in America was a $12 million a year organization out of Texas. So no sense of scale. Mm-hmm. Uh, water was buried uh, under environment. You know, clean drinking water was buried in the Millennium Development Goals. And there just wasn't a movement of people talking about it, caring about it. Mercy Ships had given one guy a little bit of money to go dig five wells every year. Mm-hmm. So they were, they were this huge medical operation. So they kind of got the importance. It just wasn't resourced. It wasn't their core competency. So I followed this well digger and saw him make an outsized impact, providing thousands of people with clean water. Um, more people even than we were touching through surgeries, through these expensive surgeries. So that's how I became interested in water. Um, Closed the chapter with Mercy Ships, came back to New York City, I was 30, and said, you know, now it's time uh, to, you know, to focus on this issue and see what kind of an impact I can make. Right. And and so it began really as one-offs though, right? Like I'm going to build a well in this village, raise money through your friends and your contacts back in New York City, and sort of do it out in piecemeal fashion. Is that how it began? It did, but the I spent months really thinking through the uh, structure of the organization and what I wanted to do different. And I don't talk about this a lot, but when I came back, the core my my vision was really more about reinventing charity than helping the world get clean water. Mm-hmm. I wanted more people to have a redemptive experience of giving of their time and of their talent and of their money, you know, which I'd just done for the last two years and seeing how rewarding that can be. Uh, I wanted to invite people to try unselfishness versus selfishness and do that uh, through clean water. So it was really marrying the passion for more charity. Charity means love. Um, in Latin, it was caritas. I remember a dictionary definition that says, it's just to help your neighbor in need with nothing in return. So I really wanted to promulgate that. I wanted to spread that in the world, in the world um, and share the transformative human experience I'd gone through with others through giving and generosity. Uh, and then I wanted that generosity that hopefully I could inspire to help as many humans in, in, in a basic needs way, you know, help improve as many human lives in a tangible way as possible. And I thought there's nothing better to do than water. And oh, by the way, there are a billion people out there. So, you know, huge problem, no one meeting it, no one talking about it in the general public. Uh, none of my friends knew anything about the water crisis. I mean, the water crisis to them was the fact that Voss water was, you know, we we're charging $10 a bottle. <laughs> right. uh, and in order, in order to kind of confront this and generate the level of interest that you were looking to garner, you have to combat traditional ideas of distrust with charities and, you know, kind of these, this idea that like, uh, you know, like I give money to this, where mm-hmm. is it really going? I don't hole. know these bloated, you know, organizations They're Yeah. Like, I, I don't know anybody who works there and also kind of leveraging your skill set as a, you know, people person, uh, as a networker, and as somebody who's known for creating, you know, quote unquote, cool events to like make this cool, like make this interesting, like create a brand around it that inspires uh, 
excitement. Yeah, you got it. I, I mean, the first thing was just trying to deal with the money. Uh, many people are surprised when they hear this stat, but 42% of Americans distrust charities. Who is more generous than Americans, right? We have this culture of generosity and philanthropy, but yet almost half of the people in the country don't trust the system. Uh, 70% of Americans polled by uh, NYU said charities waste or badly waste money. So there's just this sense, as you said, of the black hole. Where does my money go? How much actually reaches the people? I want to help, but I don't trust the system. So I wanted to combat that through just a new business model. And yeah, this was crazy at the time. But I, I said, what if we could give away 100% of every donation we ever get from the public uh, to only directly fund water projects that would improve human lives? water projects that we could prove that would be tangible and somehow figure out how to go raise all the overhead dollars, the staff, the salaries, the office, the flights separately from a small group of people. And I remember opening up two bank accounts with $100 each on Broadway and Bond uh, Commerce at the time and just making this bold promise and saying, look, we can take the number one excuse people have about not giving completely off the table. Mm -hmm. It's moot. What's your next excuse? Uh, and, and as you said, you know, the, the, the second real vision was wanting to build a beautiful, inspirational, hopeful brand. Uh, I was, as I looked at the charitable sector, I saw shame and guilt-based marketing. Uh, some people might remember those Sally Struthers commercials uh, on TV late night. The kids, the flies landing on their face, the slow motion look uh, as they lock eyes with camera, and then the 800 number comes. Mm -hmm. They work. I mean, you feel so bad, you get your wallet out, but you don't want to wear the t-shirt of that charity. Um, people do want to wear the t-shirts of Nike, uh, you know, that tells right. you that there's greatness within you. And if you don't have arms, you can win the shot put competition. If you don't have legs, you can run a marathon. And I really was looking for, you know, I was looking to build something that would feel more like Apple or Nike or Tesla or Virgin that would be fun and inspirational and imaginative. And uh, who wouldn't want to jump on the bandwagon to help people get clean water uh, and not guilt people into it? Right. And sell that idea, like that aspirational idea that that uh, each individual is empowered enough to actually make a difference. Yep. I, yeah, I heard you say this on, an, I don't know who, I can't remember who you were talking to, but you you were talking about Nike and saying, yeah, Nike sells shoes, but really they, they're selling an ethos. They're selling an idea of self-empowerment. Like you can do it. Like you can tackle this challenge and see your way through it. And to kind of take, you know, take that idea and translate it into this nonprofit sector and re-energize it. That's true. I mean, Nike's not telling you, you're fat and lazy. Stop eating the Cheetos and get off the couch. <laughs> right. right? You they're feel not, bad right? about They're not yourself. doing that. You're not going to wear that t-shirt uh -huh. and you're probably not going to go run if they do that. So yeah, that was it. And, and you know, we, we, we also made a bet on hyper transparency early on. Um, we just, charities aren't great at telling people the result of their, their dollars or, mm -hmm. or the results of the work. And we said from day one, we're going to put every single water point we fund publicly on Google Earth and Google Maps. So anybody could go buy a $50 GPS device from Best Buy and hike around the world um, to see that these projects actually exist. And people at the time said, that's so crazy. Why would you tell donors? What if a donor turned up on their well and it wasn't working? We're like, well, we freaking want to know that it's not working. Right. Why do you think we're doing this? Yeah, <laughs> not, not to get rich. <laughs> the job pays like crap. <laughs> sort of respect for the donor. 
as opposed to looking at the donor as a fungible sort of means to an end, yes. but actually celebrating, you know, the donor for making that decision and including them and in, in sort of creating that emotional connection with the end result of, of the giving. That you, you said, oh, you're speaking my language. Um, so many charities, you know, wish money grew on trees and uh, think donors are stupid, talk down to them. You know, they're just a means to an end. We celebrate, like we're in the business of encouraging people to explore radical generosity. Uh, that even if you have $10, you know, we, we have kids that, you know, will, will send us $2 in, in dimes that $2 can actually make a difference. I mean, it really can. Um, it'll be pooled with another $28 and mm-hmm. one person could get clean water. So All right, I think so, yeah. it, was, it was different. It just right. felt different. You know, giving away 100%, proving where the money went, um, leading with hope and inspiration and imagination and creativity, and then working through local partners, not sending Westerners to Africa or India or Asia to drill wells. Our, our job would be to find and identify the local partners, we believe, for work to sustain to be sustainable, uh, it had to be led by Rwandans in Rwanda or Ethiopians in Ethiopia um, and Cambodians in Cambodia. So this idea, though, of 100% of the funds are going to go directly towards building these wells, serving these communities. I mean, you had to get pushback at the time. Like, that's insane. Like, you have overhead. Yeah, you'll go bankrupt with the pushback. Like, how how are you going to work this out? How are you going to convince anyone to invest in your overhead you know, without, that's not sexy, right? And keeping these things bifurcated had to be a really hard road. It was, and in every conversation, I'm trying to size up a potential donor and saying, hey, does this one person want to help pay for employee number three? Or is this person disenchanted with charity and really excited about the 100% model? So I was constantly uh, really selling two very distinct ideas uh, and money that would drop into two differently numbered bank accounts. So actually the the one was much easier as people would imagine. So out of the gate, we come out and, and raise millions of dollars. Um, everything works. We did events, uh, we did exhibitions, we were just trying to be creative and we put dirty water in huge plexi tanks from the East River and the Hudson River and ponds in Long Island and New Jersey. And we showed New Yorkers, hey, if you had to drink out of a swamp, this is what it would look like. Uh, and then we asked them to give uh, just just did all of this stuff, water walks, PSAs that uh, we got donated space and and ran on TV to over 20 million people. It, it was it was just awesome at the beginning and people began to give and we, we raised so much money for the water projects. Year and a half in, I've got $881,000 on its way out in the water bank account and I'm about to miss payroll because mm. we've just run out of money right. on the overhead side. And we had nine employees at the time. Um, everybody's making, I don't know, 40 or 50 grand. There's no health care. I mean, it's not a real thing yet, but we funded a couple million dollars of water projects. And, you know, it was really, I, I wouldn't say it was a hard choice or a dilemma. Uh, the, I, I was just going to shut the charity down. But people were saying, listen, it's not, a, it's not an issue. Just borrow against it. Right. Yeah, money's fungible. You can write an IOU and pay it back later. But we made this promise. Right. We made the promise if we if we borrowed one penny from the public's money, that trust is betrayed. Yeah, there's a crack at the foundation. And this is another test of faith, really. Like, are you gonna? Can you hold that line and see it through? Yeah, there were a lot of these. So we were gonna we were gonna die on our principles of integrity, and uh, and this amazing (laughs) thing happens. Uh, You know, a guy walks into our office, a British man. Uh, who had um, started a uh, internet company, 
and he takes a two-hour meeting with me. And I just remember thinking, this guy doesn't like me. He's not laughing at any of the jokes. He's just giving me nothing. Uh, he leaves the meeting, and a couple of days later, uh, it's midnight. I remember working. I remember exactly where I was. I'm working on the computer. <laughs> it's probably in a spreadsheet, figuring out how many hours we had left. <laughs> and he, he sends an email and says, hey, Scott, it was really great meeting you. Uh, I've wired a million dollars into your overhead account. Mm-hmm. And I logged onto the bank account and there it was, one comma zero, 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 comma zero, zero, zero. So we went from bankrupt to over a year of funding uh, of oxygen. And we, so we stewarded that time. Uh, we stewarded that time to actually build what's now a pretty sophisticated multi-year and multi-tier giving program where 117 families from all over the world pay for all the overhead. Um, which has made it possible for over a million donors to have this pure giving experience. Wow. And along the way, you know, the way that I sort of see it, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but you really have ushered in this new wave, this new sort of uh, means for giving. Like there's a whole sort of new generation of charities and nonprofits who have, you know, sort of taken a tip out of your playbook and created similar models that give the donor that level of trust and that transparency and that emotional connection with where the dollars and the effort is going. I hope so. And I'm not out there preaching the 100% model. It's incredibly difficult. It's not right for everybody. It was unique to us and the problem we were trying to solve. I was trying to reach out to the 42%, mm. not steal donors you know, who are loyal to other organizations. But the transparency, the and, transparency and the sort of sure. really, really like... Uh, adept use of social media to storytell, right? I mean, that's the huge part of this whole thing as well. Yeah, I I think people are open to a lot of different value propositions. They just want to know where their money goes. You know, if I told your listeners that uh, our biggest challenge at the moment was a broken window in the office and someone had thrown a rock through it, it was going to cost $1,700 to fix it, right? There's no worse cost than that. But I bet people would come up with $1,700 to help us fix a broken window mm-hmm. or a broken copier. It's just knowing, that's what I just preached. You know, just tell people where their money's going. Um, our overhead donors are so excited that their money is going to flights and salaries and insurance and phone bills because they are the kind of people that want to serve the organization. They don't need their names on buildings mm-hmm. or wells. Um, the, you know, they, they, they are they're really our investors. They're kind of like our backers. Um, there are heroes and the, the million people are then able to get a really, I mean, we, we have a guy that gave three point two point seven million dollars, hundred percent of it going to water projects, um, at one time, just not interested in paying for overhead. The reason he was giving that money, the reason he was interested in helping so many people was because of that. So that's new money. Those are new people that got clean water. Very cool. So let's talk about the water problem specifically. So a billion people, when you began this journey, uh, lacking clean water, most of that is Sub-Saharan Africa. Is that correct, right? And now that number's down to like- 660. Six, yeah, right, okay. Yep, 663 million. So it's it's uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, it's India, it's Southeast Asia, uh, very little bit in Central and South America. Um, yeah, so the state of the, the crisis today, it's a tenth of the world. So one out of every 10 people alive today is drinking bad water today. 
because of the circumstances they were born Mm. in. And, you know, this is kind of a profound concept that we've, you know, we've just wrestled with over the last decade now of Charity Water. And I was born in a middle-class family in Philadelphia. (laughs) Water for me comes out of the tap. It's it's in bottles uh, that we can afford. And in the places that we're working, uh, women are often walking, you know, five, six hours a day to get dirty water from a swamp or a river, uh, often risking their lives to do it. Um, you know, I'll talk about the crisis. So if you don't have clean water, it makes you sick. 52% of the disease uh, is, is because of bad water and, and sanitation. Um, it's incredibly harmful to kids under five. So about a thousand kids will die today and every day just of drinking bad water. And you actually die of dehydration. So you know, unheard of here in the West. Diarrhea. That's right, because the way that you cure diarrhea is with clean water. Uh, We've all seen the Pedialyte, right? The kind of blue stuff at the Walgreens. Uh, Well, you don't have that. So if your child gets diarrhea, you give them the same bad water and they actually get so dehydrated that they just die. So huge health implications, worms, parasites, leeches, uh, bilharzia, trachoma, people go blind from water. Um, huge education implications. So uh, at the time when we started, I don't know the updated stat, but when we started Charity Water, 50% of the world's schools didn't have clean water mm. or toilets. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure there are people listening that education is their number one cause. Uh, how can you imagine going to a school where there's no clean water or toilets and you've got to bring dirty river water with you? And, and what was day. interesting was learning about how that that has a disproportionate impact on on young girls. On girls, and the toilets even more than the water, because the girls will hit puberty and will stay home. You know, those four or five days every month, fall behind in their studies. You know, missing a week a month, and you know, culturally, there's already resistance against them because they are the workhorse. You know, they're the ones getting the firewood, doing the cooking, getting the water. Doing so, those eight-hour walks. Doing the eight-hour walks. Thing, and it right? really is. You know, for someone listening, it's it sounds, it's just such a disconnect. It's so hard for us to fathom, you know, 663 million anything, uh, you know, an eight-hour walk. But that's what's happening. The women are getting up at four or five in the morning. They do the eight-hour walk, and then they come back for the second day of the work. Uh, cooking, uh, cleaning, gardening, uh, getting firewood. Yeah, it's just it's it's really difficult to imagine that. So that's the third one, really. It's just time, uh, just the the amount of time wasted. There's health, there's education. Uh, Forty billion hours are wasted in Africa every year just collecting water. Mm-hmm. So you think of the 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 potential there to turn that wasted time into productive time, whether it's family time, whether it's uh, small business or entrepreneurial endeavors. Uh, we hear incredible stories when people get clean water. Uh, probably the the most I've I've really seen a lot now over the years. I've been to sixty six countries. I've been to Ethiopia twenty nine times since starting Charity Water. So a lot of my job is on the road, uh, you know, stuck in I don't know seat sixty two H uh, on a fourteen hour flight. But it's uh, the story probably that's that's that for me best personifies the water crisis or the emergency that is facing people. Uh, is a story from Ethiopia of a woman named Letikiros. And I'd, I'd heard this story, let's say, on my 24th or 25th trip to Ethiopia, staying in a crappy $5 a night hotel room with some donors. And the owner of the hotel recognized me, comes in the lobby, or this little restaurant that we were sitting in, 
and says, hey, you know, I'm from a really remote village before I came into this town to run this hotel. Um, there was this woman in my village and she used to walk eight hours with the other women. But one day she gets home and she slips and falls and she spills her water and she breaks her clay pot. So her whole eight hour walk is now undone. He's like, she hung herself from a tree and we found her body swinging there. I remember he paused and he kind of watched the shock on our face and said, uh, the work you guys are doing is important. He walks back into the kitchen. I remember thinking, definitely not true. Tell the you know white powerful. international donor uh, a sad story that you know makes him feel really good about the work. But I just it just nagged and gnawed at me. And you know, is it possible that someone had committed suicide because they slipped on a rock and spilled their water? And I got a pass from my wife to to go and explore this for myself and live in this village completely off the grid. Um, I had to you know, fly to Addis, fly up to the north, drive five hours, and then rent a donkey and hike nine hours uh, with a little solar backpack mm-hmm. and a sleeping mat. And, and I, I found out it was true. Uh, I found 2,800 people living in this man's village uh, called Maida. And they were walking eight hours to horrible sur- sources. And, you know, he, the, I met her mom. I met her friend. I walked in her footsteps. I saw the tree where they'd, they'd found and cut her down. Uh, I saw the, the little pile of rocks behind the church where her grave was. And uh, I, I didn't know this at the time, but when I, when I got to the village, I learned that she was only 13 when she died. She was a little girl. You know, this wasn't a, a woman who'd walked her whole life and said, enough. This was a 13-year-old girl brimming with um, aspirations of wanting to get out of the village and wanting to be a doctor. And what was even more shocking was when I tried to figure out what the motivation was, her best friend said, well, she would have killed herself because of shame. You know, she, she had screwed up. She'd spilled the water that the family needed to cook dinner. Mm-hmm. She'd broken the clay pot, which is a $3 asset. Um, so it would have just been too much for her to face her family because her carelessness oh, would set them back. So, you know, you, you have an experience like that and you just, you're pissed off. I mean, you're fired up and uh, I don't think there's anyone listening that thinks 13 year old girls should be hanging themselves from trees because they spilled their water uh, after an eight hour walk. And, and, and you know, the, the terrible irony is that in so many of these communities, the solutions are simple. They're living on top of massive amounts of clean water. You know, we're often able to drill 200 feet deep and get you know, 10 liters per second of spring water. What the communities don't have access to is the $10,000 required to drill the well. They don't have access to a million dollar drilling rig and compressors and trucks and hydrologists, which is what you know our community is able to provide. But the community will contribute stone and gravel and sweat equity. Uh, many of them will build roads over periods of months just to get the drilling rig into their village. Mm-hmm. Um, they just don't have the money for the, the capital expense. Yeah, ten thousand dollars, and the the transformation for the entire community is you know undefinable. Like I, I heard you tell a story about a woman who said she feels beautiful now, you know, because she always had to make that decision: where is this clay pot of water going to go? Is it going to go to you know my kids? Is it going to go to my husband to wash the clothes? And never there, of course, never being enough to just sort of you know attend to her personal hygiene. Yeah, that's incredible. And we never even thought of that, that water could restore a woman's dignity. 
You know, we think of it typically in practical terms, but um, I was just in her village a few weeks ago, Helen Appio. Mm. Um, and the women were all saying, we look so smart now, looking so neat. <laughs> <laughs> Because they, they had the water to, as you said, wash their clothes, wash their face, feel, feel beautiful. Is the well drilling process, I would imagine it's not always the same, right? You're going to be in certain regions where you're not going to be, I mean, first of all, how do you, how do you, how are you sure there's water underneath there? How do you locate it? What's the procedure and the process for the best, you know, means for getting that water to a particular village? It's a great question. Um, it, it's not always the same. So we've worked in 24 countries now uh, around the world uh, and about 13 different solutions. So drilling a well would be one of the 13. Uh, stuff like rainwater harvesting or gravity-fed systems or biosand filters would be others. Uh, drilling a well, uh, you know, our partners will do different things. Some of them will shock the ground. They've got kind of those uh, almost EKG machines that will look for the fissures and determine where the water is. Others will look at eucalyptus trees and say, ah, I see that grove of eucalyptus trees. I know that the roots need a lot of water. There's mm -hmm. gonna be water there. Mm -hmm. um, we're about 90% successful. So for every 10 wells we drill, we get nine good ones. Uh, so it's not a perfect science. And there are some communities that we just can't help that will either have to pipe water in uh, or, or you know, look to rainwater harvesting. Or in, in some cases, you know, as, as the problem really gets solved, there'll be a few communities that'll just have to move. Um, and it will have to be relocated. How do you deal with local governments and corruption and, you know, the dangers inherent with, you know, sort of traveling <laughs> across these, you know, sort of treacherous regions? We've set a couple rules for ourselves uh, early on. We've said no conflict zones and no governments that don't want us. Just as a young organization, look, we're, you know, we're now we're 10 years old, but, you know, we just didn't have a proficiency in dodging bullets or... Or, or working in those environments. So that left us 50 countries that we could work in. So a, a huge amount of places of need. So we haven't, we haven't really dealt with the military, you know, the warlords. You know, we're not in South Sudan. We're not in DRC Congo. We're not in Myanmar. Um, we're not in um, a place like Zimbabwe where, you know, we don't know that we could get our goods in. Uh, we worked in Haiti early on and then just pulled out and allocated the resources Uh, to other places because we were just having a hard time getting the materials in the port and, mm -hmm. and getting the work done well. Um, so there's a there's an amazing team at Charity Water of um, 19 people who just live, eat, breathe the functionality of our water projects, uh, the locations, the vetting, the auditing, making sure the money is being spent well. Uh, that's not trivial. You know, we've raised a quarter of a billion dollars now. So uh, having knowing if we're buying 10,000 bags of cement, we need to know how much it costs on the local market. So our auditors would go in and say, okay, well, Charity Water paid $16.23. How much does it cost locally? Mm -hmm. If it's 10 bucks, we have a serious problem. Uh, often we'll find it's $20 and our partners have negotiated such a good discount mm -hmm. because of the work that they're doing and the bulk that they're buying that um, we would actually pay a lot more than, than they are. So there, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of complexity uh, finding the right solution, finding water, and then there's a lot of complexity in just keeping that clean water flowing over time and sustainability. You know, there's probably people that have you know they're listening. They're like, well, what about the broken wells in Africa? Mm -hmm. And right. how do you know your wells are working five years from now? The answer is we don't, or we didn't. And uh, five years into the organization, uh, we we began to work on solving that problem. So our first 
uh, I guess, pillar of transparency was just saying, we know where they all are. And we know that on day one, clean water was flowing when we posted the picture uh, and the GPS to the internet. And five years on, we said, well, we want to know, are they working five years later? Uh, so we pitched Google this crazy idea and I walked into Google and, and with a couple of people and said, um, we have an idea. What if we could develop a remote sensor? Uh, we would have to design it where it could withstand temperatures of 60 degrees to 130 degrees. And it would have to be gray and nondescript so it didn't look like an item of value. And it needed a 10-year power source. And oh, by the way, we want to make it for $100. <laughs> and open source the whole thing. Uh, and we think this would provide greater transparency and, and we'd know uh, not only that our water projects are working uh, and potentially others, but how much water is actually flowing. So Google uh, granted $5 million. It was the largest check they'd ever written to a nonprofit uh, in the history of the company at that time. And uh, we began to work with 20 different labs. We made a lot of crappy sensors. A lot of things didn't work. And then uh, about a year and a half ago, uh, we did our first pilot and we dropped 3,000 sensors in Ethiopia. So we retrofitted 3,000 of our earliest projects. And in that moment, accumulated the largest data set of rural water supply in the mm -hmm. history of the world. Because nobody bothered to do this. I mean, these are people making a dollar a day living in communities of 250 or 300. So now we're monitoring billions of liters uh, coming from these communities. We're about to drop sensor two, uh, another version in Nepal and drop a thousand there, which is a pipe sensor. So now, you know, we know that our functionality in Ethiopia is 91%, which means we have 9% that are issues. Mm -hmm. uh, we've also trained mechanics who are now going out and responding to the sensor data uh, when it shows that a project fails with the tools uh, to be able to help the community make those major repairs. And the communities will pay for the repairs. So that's the great thing. Uh, they just don't always have the expertise. Mm -hmm. So those 9% are in the process of being repaired at any given time. Amazing. So how many wells to date? Uh, a little over 23,000. 23,000. For 7 and, million people. And uh, and so there's still a ways to go here. 1% of the 600, problem, and that's yeah. depressing, right? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> but I mean, that's what I want to get into. Like, you know, you're an optimistic guy and you've made a major dent in this problem. There's still a long way to go. Like, how do you sort of conceptualize the road forward? Right now, what's a little frustrating is there's a 3x delta between the amount of people that we know how to help and the money that we're raising. So that, I, I wanna get there. Um, we will struggle to help a million people this year get clean water for the first time in their life. And while a million sounds small to me, um, you know, people remind me it's an average of 2,800 people a day. So that's kind of cool, mm -hmm. right? 2,800 people today are going to drink clean water for the first time in their life because of the charity water community, because of our donors and our supporters. Uh, it's one person every 30 seconds. So if we talk for an hour, that means, you know, 120 people got clean water just while we were having this conversation. That's the KPI. So I want that number to be 3 million people a year, 5 million people a year. I want to go faster. Uh, we're also using, looking for ways to use our technology beyond just charity water. Um, we're trying to um, now sell in the sensor isn't the right word. It's $100. We're not trying to make any money off it. But we're, we're hoping to get a country to actually adopt it um, and go full, fully transparent. So imagine if a country like Rwanda, you know, installed a sensor on every single water point in Rwanda and made that data public. People, I think, would come flocking right. to, you know, bring Rwanda as close to 100% water coverage 
as possible. So you know, we're looking for ways to just grow our impact, help more people every single day. We know how to do it. We have an amazing team now. We have 10 years of, of getting the bumps and, and the successes and the failures and learning from our mistakes. And we just, we really have a best in class team and, and best in class water programs now uh, across the world. So, so that's what I'm, I'm thinking about a lot. You know, from a, from a business sense, one of the biggest regrets is that, you know, a million donors gave once, you know, well over a million donors gave once, but every year at January 1, we found ourselves starting over. And no matter how hard we worked, uh, you know, I, I was making 150 speeches a year. I'll probably make 200 this year. Uh, I did 96 flights before my son was born. I mean, we, we couldn't, we couldn't work any harder. And we would, you know, we would raise all this money and we'd help a million people. And then January 1, we'd start with a big fat zero. Mm-hmm. And we would look at ourselves. I remember looking at my wife saying, yeah, how did we do that? How would we ever do that again? And how would we grow? And as we celebrated our 10th year, um, we said, you know, we need to do something different to grow over the next 10 years. Uh, and we launched a, a brand new campaign uh, in a giving community called The Spring. And the idea was very simple. It was just taking uh, subscription, which people are very familiar with. Uh, the average person listening would have 11 subscriptions. You know, the likes of Spotify, Netflix, uh, Hulu, Dropbox, maybe a, a newspaper or a magazine or a cable company. I'm trying to create a subscription program for good where instead of us getting the benefit, watching movies or, you know, consuming content, 100% of the benefit would be passed on to people who don't right. have clean water. Um, and we, we just started inviting people into that. It's called The Spring. Uh, every $30 can give one person clean water. So we kind of said, look, if, if somebody can give $30 a month, it's a dollar a day, you don't get anything. Okay, I'm not gonna send you swag. You're not getting like a tote bag or a mug or a thermos. We will send you stories of impact every single month so you know what your money's doing. Um, but that's what we're really trying to build. And um, I, you know, I, any, anyone listening that wants to check that out or, or learn, that is, that is literally the number one way that people can help. We're at 8,100 people in that community. Um, I'm looking kind of for 10,000 in the pilots. Um, and then we'll keep going. So that- I love that. I mean, that's great because then you're, you're continually engaged. It's not a one-off thing like, oh, I did my thing and now I'm moving on with my life. And it's know? not even about the money you too. Know. That's it. It's about the engagement. So we have kids that are giving $5 a month, but we get to talk to them every single month. We get to talk about water. We get to talk about our partners and our beneficiaries and the amazing work. So, you know, that's the typical response would, you know, somebody might listen to this and say, well, that's cool what those guys are doing. I'll go and give a hundred bucks. You know, that that's, that's useful and we can help three people get clean water, but we're really trying to build a community of people that will say, um, we will see an end to this. Um, you know, we'll give what we can, you know, uh, some people, you know, giving a hundred dollars a month. Some people are giving 500 a month. Some people are giving 10, you know, it's, it's less about the amount. It's just people saying, you know, we're in this, like, we don't think people should drink dirty water because of where they're born. We believe in a day where every single man and woman and child is drinking clean water. Uh, that has this basic need for health and, uh, and and happiness and to thrive met. So that's what we're building right now. Um, it's just charitywater.org slash the spring. And then the other way that, that people have helped and, and we're continuing to grow this movement is just by the giving birthdays. up their birthday. The birthdays. This is, this is one of those surprising things. And it's, I love it so much because it's, it again, it speaks back to the vision of reinventing charity. Um, the idea is very simple. On my 32nd birthday, I just said, look, 
I don't want to throw a birthday party. I don't want to get a single thing for my birthday. I don't want a tie or a wallet or a uh, iTunes gift card or, uh, you know, Crate and Barrel, whatever was that people were giving at the time. Um, I would love for my birthday to help other human beings. And I thought kind of the sticky marketing idea would be to ask for my age in dollars. Because everyone I knew had $32 they could give to charity if 100% of the money would help others and they could track where that money went. So I just emailed every single person I knew. And then this spread from, they started emailing their friends. Hey, this guy's giving up his birthday for clean water. Wound up raising $59,000 to help a lot of people. And right after I did that, a seven-year-old kid in Austin, Texas said, well, I'm going to donate my seventh birthday. Uh, well, he's six at the time. So he donates his seventh and he starts knocking on doors in Austin asking for $7 donations. And you know, he lived in a nice neighborhood, but he raised $22,000. That's crazy. And an 89-year-old donated her birthday. And Nona Ween wrote this beautiful mission statement saying, you know, I'd like my birthday uh, to make birthdays possible for other people. You know, realizing she's double the life expectancy because of the privilege she was born into. She got to live to 89 and some people get to live to 35 or 40. So this was just this beautiful idea of our birthdays could help people have more birthdays. And, you know, nobody really wants to buy us more crap anyway. My, my friends would much rather be involved in something redemptive and something generous and, and, and bringing, you know, addressing a human need and ending the suffering uh, of others across an ocean. So people have done this and other fundraising campaigns have raised over $50 million uh, and helped you know, almost 2 million people get clean water. And uh, it's just a simple thing right. to do. So, you know, you there's gotta, probably- You gotta tell the story about Rachel though. Oh, I, it's an exhausting one. Uh, well, you can, you don't- yeah, you, No, no, I, 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 I'd love to. You tell the whole thing, but- it's, it's so um, powerful. It's mentally exhausting. So there was this, most of the birthdays are just happy stories. Um, you know, we've, we've gotten, I mean, Will and Jada Smith gave up their birthdays and Jack Dorsey from Twitter did three birthdays and, um, you know, 16 year olds in the middle of the country. It's just a really joyful, amazing thing. Uh, this girl in Seattle, uh, Rachel, who you just mentioned, had seen me speak and she was eight and she donated her birthday and said, I, I'm going to cancel my party. I don't want any gifts from her family. And she just asked for $9. And she wound up raising $220. Now, this was shy of her $300 goal. So she is actually bummed. <laughs> she told her mom, uh, I'm going to try harder next year. You know, She felt like she'd let people down mm. because she hadn't you know, helped 10 people get clean water. Uh, I was in Central African Republic uh, with our team at the time that this happened. So I didn't know about her or her responding to my talk or her birthday. I land in New York. I turned my phone on. I hadn't had service for a while. And I get a text from the pastor of her church saying, uh, hey, Rachel, this little girl in my congregation was just killed in a car crash. So there was a 20-car pileup uh, in Seattle. She was the only fatality. Uh, A tractor trailer had come. Uh, it just spun out of control and crashed into the back of her car where she was sitting. Her mom was driving, her sister was in the front, they were banged up, but Rachel lost her life. And he said, you know, Rachel's last wish was to help your charity. And she was asking for $9 and she wanted to raise 300 bucks. And he said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have my church try and blow this campaign out of the water, $9 at a, at a time. I remember sitting uh, there with my wife on the couch, just tears streaming down my eyes. And I made the $80 donation to bring her from 220 to 300. And over the next um, really period of hours and then days and then weeks, 
uh, it just began to spread. And people through her church community, through the Seattle community, uh, spread to the morning shows, the Today Show, CBS Early Morning, the New York Times, started spreading through Europe to Russia, um, and then through Africa. And people in Africa started donating $9. So to this little girl in Seattle, um, to in, in her honor, uh, she raised over $1.3 million. Mm. So almost 40,000 strangers were so moved by the heart and the compassion and the values of this little girl who should want Barbies or, or other gifts, um, who should want a party. And instead, once kids she's never met across an ocean to have clean water. Um, we had the honor of taking her mother and her grandparents to Ethiopia on the exact one-year anniversary of her death. And they went village to village to village, meeting thousands of the people who had clean water because of Rachel. And I remember it was just so emotional. We just we were just like in tears for four days. Um, uh, community members would come out, they would draw, the kids would draw pictures of what they thought Rachel looked like. Um, the Ethiopians named a huge, huge valley after Rachel. We went into a church once and the priests had been praying uh, that God would take care of Rachel's soul since midnight. And they had a picture up her on the altar. I and mean, it was just really, really moving. Women walked up to Rachel's mom, threw themselves prostate at, at her feet and said, you know, we have lost children too. We know your pain, we know your grief, but your daughter's death brought us life. And we thank you for that. I mean, it was incredibly emotional. And, That's beautiful. Um, even cooler, you know, this is this is years ago that this happened. Um, so many people that donated $9 to her campaign then went on to donate their birthdays and she inspired over $2 million. So her impact now, um, this girl who raised $220 while alive, she's raised over $3 million, impacted 100,000 people's lives. Um, and it's cool because now we have a bunch of sensors on Rachel's wells. And I could tell you, you know, yesterday, uh, just find a well and say, you know, yesterday, one of Rachel's wells pumped 1,765 liters of clean water five years later. Um, so her impact is in uh, the tens and tens of millions of gallons of clean water. It's unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, I think that it, it's so easy to be cynical and sarcastic and feel disempowered in our culture like oh, i can't make a difference you know i'm just gonna live my life i'm gonna get what's mine um and what you present is such a very you know tangible real accessible way to for each individual to actually have a profound difference make a profound difference in, in, in somebody else's life and you know it's amazing what you've built and the impact that it's had and i'm interested in like how that has kind of framed your or reshaped your worldview and, and kind of how you feel about yourself because it's this amazing arc from kind of really self-serving to serving others. And, <clears throat> and you know, the recipe that's baked into that is, you know, a life of meaning is a life of service, right? And we kind of know that intellectually and so few people actually find their way towards actually embodying that and, and can be living examples and, and, you know, proof positive that this is really true. If you want to be happy, if you want to live a fulfilling, meaningful life, then give of yourself. I mean, that's, you're, you're speaking my language. Uh, I really believe that. I think there's a, a real freedom that comes with service. And so many people are enslaved in the, in the service of themselves or just in, I mean, I was for so many years. Um, I remember coming across 
uh, a verse in the Bible many years ago uh, that said, true religion is to look after widows and orphans in their distress and to keep yourself from being polluted. Uh, and I, I mean, I had been 0 for 2 in those categories for many years. <laughs> uh-huh. And just remember thinking, you know, a, a life of service to others and personal integrity, you know, a life of, of values. Um, so I've really, I've tried to do that. I mean, the thing was birthed out of, out of my personal faith, but the, the charity has had no religious affiliation. And that's been really exciting to me to see Jews and Christians and atheists and Muslims and Mormons and um, everybody kind of come together under this very big tent of clean water um, from, you know, the most crazy Republicans to the crazy Democrats to the independents and the moderates. It's really one of those few things everybody can agree on. And I wanted to build a very, very big uh, a, a very big tent. I wanted to kind of build something that was incredibly inclusive where anybody could contribute. You know, if you had a dollar, um, if you had 10 cents, you know, you would feel honored. You, and we would be a good steward of that. Um, it's also really hard. You know, it's, it's, it's hard. The travel is tough being away from the family, you know, the environments that we travel in, the stuff that we see. Um, you know, I've done 28 flights this year and yeah. we're in May. Uh, so a lot of uh, a lot of the job is is on the road and it's it's tough. But um, and how does how does being a father now, um, you know, shape how you do what you do? Other than the logistical aspect of like how much you're going to travel or not travel, just sort of philosophically, like how you approach the work. I think I just have a greater compassion for what it uh, what it means to be a father or a mother and lose a child. Uh, I. I remember years ago uh, sitting with a woman in Niger, Africa, who told me that eight of her children died. And she named them all, and she gave me all their ages through a translator. Uh, She had two left. So she'd had 10 and eight had passed. And I I, I was almost numb to that. You know, I mean, I just couldn't relate, really. (laughs) And now, I mean, my kid you know, last night was actually sick and was throwing up and we, we came home from it. We rushed home from an event and, you know, I thought I saw blood on the table. It was just berries. Um, but you know, just this like sheer terror, like what if, what if I would lose a child, one child? And I don't know, I think it's just given a greater sense of urgency to fight for the thousand kids that are going to die today and to fight for their moms and dads and fight for, uh, a, a more equitable world, a world where people you know, have a roof over their heads and clean water to drink and they're not going to bed starving and hungry. Um, so, you know, I, th- I think if we uh, solve the water crisis in our lifetime, which I really, really believe we will, um, and I think as long as we continue to invite people into it and everyday people, as you said, reject the apathy and the cynicism that is so easy to embrace and say, I can do something. I can give $30 a month. Uh, I could give up a birthday. Um, I could get my company involved. Uh, who knows? Whatever that action is, um, I think we can see an end of the water crisis. But uh, you know, I I don't see myself dropping the mic and going to work at a bank. <laughs> right. I don't see that happening. Right. I mean, yeah. I think we would take we would turn but, the attention of our community of our team on another basic human need. Maybe we would attack shelter. Maybe we would attack hunger. Um, I mean, we're we're really all in on the service to to others and. Um, it's fun. You know, I, um, my wife and I uh, live in a 950 square foot one bedroom in New York City. And that's a choice because you know, I walk eight minutes to work. And when I'm in this, when I'm home, I want to see my kids in the morning and at night and not commute, you know, an hour to, to the suburbs. 
But, you know, we, we recently calculated our like very meager net worth with our, um, our 401ks. And, you know, we realized that in the, the eight years we've been married, we gave away three times that amount. You know, so we're, we're kind of on the, yeah. you know, 75, 25. And, and, you know, the more money, uh, I mean, every once in a while, someone will do nice for me. And I, my first instinct is just immediately to give that away, whatever they've given me, um, to someone who needs it more. There is a weird sort of spiritual truth to this idea that when you give, you get back, you know, uh, tenfold or fivefold or whatever it is. And, you know, just the idea that like you give so freely, look how large your life has become. Look at the impact that you've been able to have. We hold on so tightly. We're so afraid of losing what we have or not getting what we think we deserve because of the cultural messaging that we're surrounded by, that we're constantly inundated with. And it's all backwards, right? It's all backwards. And like to see you give so much and yet your life just continues to grow and expand and, you know, the, the, the sense of purpose and meaning that infuses everything that you do, <clears throat> you know, when you put your head down on the pillow at night, that's got to be a great feeling. Even knowing there's still, you know, bigger problems to tackle and, you know, work to be done and all of that, to know that, like, that commitment to service on such a fundamental level and the principles that, you know, kind of direct your decision making and how you allocate your resources um, you know, has, has really given your life meaning that extends far beyond your own little, you know, myopic sort of existence or yeah. per perspective, right? My favorite quote in the last 10 years, uh, guy was, the guy that worked with us was passing a bodega and he snapped a photo and emailed it to me and it said, do not be afraid of work that has no end. And I really look at our, our work, our vision, our mission like that. I mean, it, it will have no end. I think that's good. Like in, in service, if you're really looking to pour yourself out in the service of others, if you're looking to give of your time, of your money, of your talent, you know, there's no end in sight. There's no drop the mic moment. There's no like exit, you know, hey, I sold my company and now I'm going to go, you know, buy a bunch of houses and cars and planes. Like it, it's just, it's a very different countercultural lifestyle in a way. Um, yeah, it's funny. People are always telling me that I should go start a company and make a lot of money so that I can give it away. And I'm like, you know, even if, even if that was a good option, um, you know, by the end of this year, uh, we'll have raised about $300 million for the poor. I don't know that many people that have given away $300 million. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, uh, yeah, the, the, I would have to be, you know, the unicorn of the unicorn of the unicorn, even if I was going to give away 95% of, of the exit, right. It's not that easy. And I would hope that, you know, if we were doing this five years from now, that number is a billion, you know, and continuing to grow. So I, I really see that as the role, um, kind of as a guide in a way to invite people in, uh, ask them to potentially put aside their cynicism because we've created something that is integrous and transparent. And, you know, there, there are 80 people in New York city, you know, who are working every day who have taken pay cuts. Nobody's in it for the money. Um, you know, people are leaving Google, Twitter, Adobe, Zynga. I mean, a lot of these people will take 50% of their pay. They'll walk away from stock options to use their skills in the service of others. Wow, that's beautiful. So it's, it's, a, it's kind of a fun work with no end because you're helping people every day. And, and you know it, and we get to see the tangible impact of that. Well, I think that's a good place to wrap it up. Um, but I think I would like to, I always like to leave people with, you know, you know, there's a lot of people that are listening that, that maybe don't feel so great about their 
profession, their career, their job, they're stuck in a situation, you know, or a relationship or, you know, some scenario that is making them unhappy. And, and, and for a lot of people, it's really hard to see their way through that, see their way out of it. I mean, you were able to kind of, you know, transform your circumstances. You know, how do you communicate with that person who does feel stuck and maybe can't see how, uh, you know, giving or being of service is going to be the path forward? Oh, I think I, I'm just keep thinking of my friend that looked at himself in the mirror and said, like, who have I become? And then just changed everything and uh, is now a dad with a job. I, I, I just keep coming back to values. I mean, being clear about you know, who do you want to be? You know, are you a person that is generous and compassionate? And, you know, what's stopping you from from that? You know, is it uh, so often people will have a number, you know, when it comes to wealth and they'll hit that number and then they'll change the number. And then they'll change the number yeah, again. Yeah, because it's it's a moving target because they don't that that hole inside them has not been filled, and that idea that that number is going to solve that equation for them is an illusion. Yeah, so I think it's a heart condition. You know, I would really examine. You know, what is it deep down? Um, is it greed? Is it um, like what what are the things that you might want to deal with and work on um, and challenge yourself in? Uh, you know, I, I, I used, used to use the phrase just addicted to giving, like in some ways, like my family's addicted to giving. We love to give anyone that asks. I mean, I don't really care about the cause. People are always thinking that I'm vetting all of these causes. My wife and I will give to 30 or 40 things just to anybody who asks, um, if it's, if it's a cause that doesn't offend our sensibilities, cause we just love giving. And the more, the more you give, the more you give. Um, I just introduced our biggest donor to a competitive, uh, a nonprofit the other day. People think I'm crazy to do that. And he's going to go and give them a bunch of money, which is great. You know, I have an abundance mentality. It's, it's not, not a, a scarcity mentality. Right. The more he gives, the more his family gives, the more they will give, the more they'll want to give. So, you know, pick any sort of virtue. If it's, I don't know, uh, I'm, I'm not going to preach anymore, but uh, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, I, I, I don't regret any of that stuff. I mean, I don't regret the the nightlife and the. I, I just look back on some of those videos and pictures. And I'm like, what a clown! I mean, what an absolute just waste of yeah, space. But that's the experience that you had to have in order to be where For you're sure. at right now. For sure, I think if I'd started Charity Water at 20, you know, right out of NYU, it would be a very different story. And and I was fortunate that. I guess that's the last thing I would say to anybody is you can redeem anything. I mean, I, I'm kind of proof of that. Yeah, there was nobody worse. Uh, I, I was, <laughs> I was really. My wife doesn't believe this, and she's now talked to enough people from nightlife, and you know, every once in a while she'll say, "Wow, you were such an a hole." Like, I, I just heard another story about something you did, or someone I yelled at, or you know, lied to, or stole from at the time. So you know, no one has really passed uh, redemption. And I think if you if you try and address the heart condition, you know, there's a lot of hope. Um, and maybe it doesn't need to be as extreme as, as mine was. I just, it was easier for me to quit everything in one go and walk in the other direction. Thanks for talking to me, man. That It's amazing what you're doing. I have so much respect and admiration uh, for the work that you do. Uh, it's inspiring. And I will publicly commit to uh, my 51st birthday, which is this fall. I will use awesome. that as a platform to I'll be your raise first 51 for, bucks. <laughs> charity water. I'll say that right now. I've never done anything like that before either, you know, so I'm excited about that. And uh, it, it's really cool kind of um, tracking your progress and, and um, 
being able to see in real time uh, the impact of the work that you're doing, man. And I, I just I just wish you much luck and continued success with all of it. Cool, man. Thanks for having me cool. on. So uh, if you want to uh, learn more, the best place uh, to go, obviously, charitywater.org. Um, and Scott's pretty visible on social media. Scott Harrison on on both Instagram and Twitter, right? Those are the main places. Yeah, although Instagram's all kid pictures. <laughs> Beware. <laughs> um, and of course, if you want to uh, participate in the spring or do the birthday thing, you can find out all the information that you need to learn about that right on, on the website, right? Yep. Anything else? That's it, man. Thanks right, so much. Man. Appreciate it. Thank you. Peace. Plants. All right, we did it. I hope you guys enjoyed that. More importantly, I hope that you were impacted by that. Uh, I don't know how you could listen to that conversation and not feel uh, inspired to uh, think about giving in a new and important way. Uh, and in the wake of that conversation, I've been doing that myself. And I think it's really astounding to realize that even a $30 donation can give one person clean water. So here's the thing. This is the announcement that I want to make. I know there are uh, many of you out there listening who can afford to provide a monthly donation to Charity Water to uh, give a little bit, maybe $30, maybe a little bit more, a small gift that can make a huge difference in another person's life. And as you heard at the end of the conversation, I am going to be raising money for Charity Water for my 51st birthday coming up in October. But more importantly, uh, I'm a new member of the spring. I'm personally donating $50 a month uh, out of my own pocket. And in the wake of this conversation, I'm going to be creating an additional account to divert a portion of corporate receipts uh, as a result of the work that I do to Charity Water as well. And I'll keep you posted on that. Uh, and my announcement is really a call to action. Uh, life is better. It's bigger. It's more fulfilling. It's more purposeful. And it's more rewarding when we give, when we are in the persistent spirit of giving. So on that note, I want to encourage all of you to check out and sign up for the spring, which is Charity Water's monthly subscription service. 100% of all donations go directly to the field to bring clean water to those in need. And spring members will get updates on the impact their donations have. We have a special URL that we set up for this purpose. So get out pen and paper. You're going to want to write this down. It is cwtr.org slash richrollspring. cwtr.org slash richrollspring. Can you guys do it? cwtr.org. No, no, no. cwtr.org forward slash richrollspring. It's a mouthful, but we got it. All right, cool. Uh, I want to thank everybody who helped put on the show today. Jason Camiolo for audio engineering and production and help with the show notes and the scripts. He's doing a tremendous job. Uh, it's been kind of tricky with the time change and being in Ireland. Jason's had to be very patient with me. So let's all thank Jason together. One, two, three. Thanks, Thanks Jason. Jason. And Sean Patterson for all his wizardry on the graphics. Those motion graphics uh, with the moving text and all that cool stuff that I put up on Instagram, that's Sean's work. So thanks, Sean. Everybody say thanks, Sean. Thanks, Sean. I want to thank Chris Swan, who is my assistant and colleague who takes care of a lot of my BS behind the scenes. Thank you, Chris. Thank, thank you, Chris. Chris. And theme music, as always, by Anna Lemma.
You guys have heard, you heard uh, Trapper and Tyler play music the other day, right? How'd it sound? Yeah, yeah. that's great. Good stuff. Good stuff, right? Yeah. All right. Thanks for the love, you guys. And I want to thank everybody here at Bally Vallon House, uh, including uh, Jenny and Justin, the proprietors and the staff. They've been amazing. The food has been incredible. The hospitality has been extraordinary. It is a week that I will, uh, I will never forget. Uh, and I'll never forget all of you guys. So thank you for sharing this experience. It's been incredible. Uh, what a gift and a blessing to, to be able to commune with like-minded souls. And I hope that you guys all go back home and don't forget, uh, the experience that we had and become your own agents of positive change for yourselves and for your community. And until then, I will see everybody back here in a couple days. I want to say peace and plants together. Ready? <laughs> Peace, Peace plants. plants. And as Julie would say, namaste. namaste. All right. Thanks, you guys. That was awesome.